Welcome to Book Shambles. You're listening to an abridged version of this episode. You can listen to the full uncut edition of this episode if you become a Patreon supporter of the show. And that's for as little as $1 a month via Patreon. And uh, you can support us. So just go to patreon.com forward slash. I still say forward slash. I'm, I'm nearly 51. Thank you. Uh, forward slash Book Shambles for more info and how to pledge. Hello and welcome to Book Shambles. Producer Trent here. Start by saying thank you to all our Patreon supporters. If you'd like to join them, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles to support this very podcast. And for your financial support of the show, which is obviously more important now than it's ever been since we are coming up on a year uh, where none of us have been able to get out and do the hundreds of live shows we normally would do, which obviously all of those help fund everything we do at Cosmic Shambles. So, yes, you'll get uh, extended episodes of Book Shambles each and every week, plus access to exclusive series like An Uncanny Hour and uh, the upcoming uh, Cosmic Conversations. It's probably not going to be called that, but that's what we're calling it for now. Lots of guests in those, including uh, Tim Minchin and Rhys Shearsmith and the astronaut Nicole Stott across those two series. And if you are a... Patreon supporter at the behind the scenes and above tiers. You can watch a lot of those um, interviews being recorded. Uh, so you can kind of come behind the scenes and watch the original recordings and see what gets cut out uh, when they eventually go out. Watch those live. All the details on the Patreon page, of course. Don't forget the Sunday Science Q&A live stream. That is free and every Sunday at 3pm, hosted by Robin and Helen Chersky. Coming up this week, we're looking at the science of ageing and genetics with uh, Dr. Andrew Steele. Uh, You've probably seen his book in the news, Ageless, at the moment, uh, and Dr. Jenny Roan, who's one of the Cosmic Shambles blog writers, will also be joining us as well. Thank you for all the uh, lovely feedback for the first episode of 2021 with Alan Davies. Uh, We had a great time recording that, so... Delighted that everyone has enjoyed that episode. Another great episode this week. This one was recorded at the end of last year. And we should say it was a day that Josie was having all manner of technical difficulties. Uh, Her laptop died halfway through. Her microphone collapsed. Um, So there are a couple of uh, technical difficulties that you'll notice throughout this episode. If you're a Patreon supporter, you'll get to peer a lot of that excitement of Josie fighting with her laptop in the uncut version. So that's something to look forward to for Patreon supporters. But our guest this week is the brilliant performance artist, Cosi Fanny Tutti. Uh, Her book, Art, Sex, Music, is one that Robin has talked about on the show a lot. So we thought it high time we get Cosi on to talk about that at length, we had her on the podcast uh, a couple of years ago, briefly as a sign of as a sort of a little short extra uh, when we were doing a festival with her. So it's nice to have her on for a full episode. Just a word of warning as well: uh, given the book is about art, sex, and music uh, in the in the sixties and the seventies, there is some talk around uh, sexual assault and some other bits and pieces that people might find upsetting. So just keep that in mind before we start this episode and now here is Robin and Josie and Cozy. Um, hello, welcome to Josie and Robin's Book Shambles and today uh, well, we're going to be talking a, a book which is 
Um, I thought it was probably one of my favourite books of the year when it came out. I think it is one of my favourite books of the decade because I really, uh, it is uh, a, a fantastic, it, well, it, in fact, I was going to say what the book's about, but the title does it. It's one of those ones that doesn't waste time. Oh, what's this <laughs> book going to be about? Oh, art, sex, music. Well, it mm. is. Uh, and many other things as well. It's Kosi Fanny Tutti's book, which is just a really, uh, well, it covers so much ground and we're going to try and cover as much of that ground as possible in the next 40 minutes. Um, hello, Kosi. Hiya. <laughs> um, I just right from the start, right the the first thing because I'm a big uh, lover of Hull. I find Hull a fascinating place. I find mm. end of the line destinations um, and the kind of crowd. I mean, I was thinking one of the venues that probably also Josie plays as well might be one of the old fruit warehouses that you for a while were kind of ensconced in creating art down, down at, at, at the um, kind of docks. I don't know if it would be or not. Yeah, but which it, one's that? Was it, was it, is it the fruit market? What's that one called on the? Yeah, it's called the fruit market, I think. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, down Humber Street. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, we played there for the Coombe exhibition as well. So, oh, yeah, I, I, I know I, it well. Well, this is what, because you start off, I mean, the, 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 the book begins, it's so evocative and so kind of, you know, this whole uh, post-war hull. And it does seem that that shaped the way that you were able to just go, I'm not really bothered about other people's judgment. I'm going to create the things that I'm, I'm going to create. I mean, it does, it, I don't know, I might be entirely wrong on this, but Hull plays a major part in, in who you are. Would you Definitely. think that's fair? Yeah, yeah, that is very fair. Um, the fact that you had to go out and... Um, basically stand up for yourself and make yourself heard otherwise you'd be just pinned down and that would be it basically it was very rough really rough and but I think like I said in the book one of the greatest things post-war and when they built the council estate that I I ended up on was that it had a real mix of people you know every job you could imagine different religions we were next door to each other and um, so I could be my, my mum and dad I suppose were professionals um, with my dad in uh, the fire brigade, my mum sort of doing accountancy. But they both came from very working class families and seafaring families too. I don't think I included that in my book, but they were both had a history of um, of uh, seafaring for sure. goes way back. I looked into it when I did my book. I actually went and did an ancestry thing, um, see where I came from, which was really interesting, really interesting, because I'd spoken to my dad's brothers and I found out a few things from them from during the war and stuff. So, um, so yeah, you get to Hull and it's hard. And it would be hard because of the uh, fishing and that industry. And like you said, it's the end of the line. So everything stops there. And it's almost like you come up again. Hull people is like coming up against a brick wall. You know, it, it doesn't matter what you've got to say. They've got their own opinion. And then, yeah, okay. Well, that's fair enough. Well, are we going there or not? I don't, you know, you get these people turning up in Hull that think they've got the answer to the world. You know, like it's that north-south divide, especially when Londoners came up or people from down south. And then um, it's so belligerent, Hull people, absolutely belligerent. <laughs> and um, But I love that about them. I've got it, you know. I can't, I can't get it out of my blood. And I think that, that did have a lot to do with my attitude to life, absolutely attitude to life. Because at that time as well, you know, we had, 
you talk about just like now with the pandemic, but we had polio going around. Wow. And my friends, we'd lost people off the estate from that. We'd lost people just from tonsillitis, mm. kid children. So, and then the big C word of cancer, there was no cure. If you got that, you were sort of on your way out. So there was a, another kind of thing going on at the same time where um, you had to live for the day, basically. And I, and I didn't mind doing that at all. I didn't have any plans. <laughs> I didn't have any bottom drawer. I would just, no, no, I think I'll be, I'll be on my way at a certain point and just um, get on with what I want to do. Because I, I, one of the things that I, I find it, when you say that, I, I remember chatting to a guy from Middlesbrough a few years ago. I was up doing some event there. And uh, he would have been a little bit older than you, but not, not much more. And he said, you have to remember, down our street, it wasn't that unusual to find out that, oh, Benny's died. Do you not know Benny's died? Yeah. Oh, yeah, Benny's died. Yeah, that, 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 and that mm. seems to me to be, in terms of looking at all of the, the culture that you went on to create and the reaction, this post-war reaction where you get, that that's part of it as well, which is that, that you were not brought up with, with a, a safety net. As you said, this is just like, if you get, get the wrong thing, that's it. You're gone, and that's another graveyard that you have to visit. Mm. So when you're to when you when you're facing that, and you're told like by mainly by my dad, not by my mum. She she never really placed any sort of um, expectations on me, really. Um, but when you're told by your dad that you've he's got got it planned out for you, you know, um, that you sort of think, well, your plans didn't work out too well. You know, you ended up in the war. You ran away from home. I found it, you know, you ran away from home, joined the Merchant Navy, then ended up in the war in the Navy, and then came out, and everything had fallen apart in his life. Maybe that's why he wanted mine planned out. I've no idea. But, um, no, I wasn't I wasn't into that at all. I, I kind of saw my sister was, you know, she's very meek, the opposite of me completely, but it really, really, I mean, her, her strength is unbelievable, and you know, underneath what she's had to put up with in her life. She's amazing. But she never sort of wanted to explore. She wanted to sort of settle down, which was fine, you know. But I, then I looked at her and thought of me. I'm thinking, I was up now. I can't say that I thought of her. Because I, I remember as a child, even very young, I was out in the street and I was doing things I shouldn't have been doing. <laughs> And kids' parents were coming around knocking on the back door. Do you know your... You know, I was Carol then. Do you know your Carol? Blah, 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 you know. And I'd be in the house I was sort of laughing my head off, you know. My sister would be, like, acting like my mum because my mum and dad were at work all day. It was the summer, school summer holidays and I was just out for any kind of mischief, mm. you know. But hearing you talk about that time, it does feel very pertinent to now, you know, when you think about the fact that the pandemic people are just you know there isn't a cure for it people are kind of stuck if you get it you get it and also similarly kind of parents having to work really long hours and that lack of safety net kind of going back backwards not forwards and so like in some ways it's so useful to have a perspective that is um, like still so relevant even though it's quite well it's not exciting I suppose because it's sad because we would hope that things had moved on yeah you would but uh, I think you know out of awful things can come some good and I hope to god it does you know even if we just get rid of this government you know the people have actually seen what they're capable of and 
I mean, talk about raping and pillaging. You know, this just, I can't, like I said to Chris, you know, I thought they were patriotic, you know, but they're selling off family silver left, right and centre. You know, they're robbing the bank here. And and I just, I'm absolutely aghast at what's going on. I'm beyond angry. I'm beyond infuriated. And I just don't know what the answer is at the moment. I also think it's hard when you've never bought into it. Do you know what I mean? It's not yeah. like you haven't been countering this since the 1970s. So it's I, I can't imagine like extra two more decades or, you know, of having to fight it. it. It's so, it boggles the mind. I look at people who used to buy into it and I'm like, how? <laughs> I know, I know. What didn't you see coming, you know? Yeah, yeah, completely. That's the hard thing, isn't it, where you go, you want to say to people, you were given all the clues. It wasn't even... <laughs> It wasn't as if you go, well, we didn't know when we put the, we, everyone we were trying to, but you end up, we, we I think almost every guest on this, all of us individually, you end up feeling like Kevin McCarthy at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, kind of shouting and saying, no one's noticed, no one's, don't you realise, yeah. the pod people. Because that's what I find, that your diary entries, by the way, I was just looking at one of my favourite ones, which I think in some ways sums up quite a lot of the book, 8th of July, 1975, fell asleep, got woken up by Selwyn trying to shag me, I told him no, sat and read diary of a drug fiend. <laughs> and it's just it's such a great because it's so funny because Tracy Thorne's book of her kind of teenage diary which is filled, as she said she never put what was actually happening in her life in so she, her diary entries are all went to Brent Cross went to CNA tried to get a new scarf the scarves were all rubbish got home yeah. and, and then she says this was the same day and she'll sometimes say this was the same day I went to a party and you know there was a possibility she might have lost her virginity or whatever but all she was putting in was details about the you know un I'm really kind of like, you know, unsatisfying knitwear of CNA. <laughs> I find it very, it's, it's been quite interesting, you know, reading both of your books. But was that because she was living at home and I wasn't at that point? Mm. I think it's so, it reveals so much who, it reveals so much about your personality and what your particular sort of MO was at the time. Like my diary, I would never write what I actually thought or felt. And that was because I was being brought up in an environment where it's sort of like you hide your feelings. Yeah. And I think, it, you know, it shows that, well, I mean, it's it's really cool <laughs> to think that you were in such a space of freedom. I just, I think when I got my own bedroom, when I was living at home, it was just like, like, this is it. This is my world now, you know. And um, I'd gone from like the roses in the joint bedroom. And, he, and my dad had said, what do you, what do you want? And they had this... One wall, you know, when they used to do those feature walls back in the um, 50s and 60s, like the chimney breast would be brick or something like that. But in the dining room, they had one wall that was like a willow pattern, but it was black. And it had this beautiful willow pattern on it of, of boats, Chinese boats and things. And I said, I want that. And this week out of it everywhere. And I said, well, just, uh, you know, the room's not that big, but I'd like that. And I got it. And um, I think that, when I suddenly got that and I and I did the, you know, the huge drawing of the naked man with all his muscles and everything in blues, with life size on the back of my door, it was just like I made my own little nest in there. And and I would, yeah, I had my diary from 69 when I was still at home. And I did write in that how I felt. But I, I, I had code for when I took acid and stuff, you know, <laughs> just in case. <laughs> what was your code for taking acid? I think just tea for tab, something like that. 
I love it. It's it's there, but it's not quite enough to like be uncrackable. No, no. But to my mum and dad, you didn't know them. They wouldn't have known. <laughs> I remember once putting in my diary that I'd had chips for my lunch, and my parents sort of quite policed what I ate. And I was really writing my diary. I'd had chips for lunch. It was lovely. And then my sister had found my diary and wrote next to it, fat cow. It was oh, so that's awful. Yeah. So then I knew that the diary was not private. No. <laughs> well, I, I found really... out a bit later than that. But... <laughs> She'd well, shown her hand. Talking about the, the, the emotional side of it, there's something which is when you write about your dad and, uh, and it's something I've, I've seen written about quite a few that that kind of, again someone who's fought in the war there seems to be this struggle with with emotion when we were just talk about emotion there which is you know you talk about things like when you, when your granddad died how great your dad was in comforting your mum and stuff mm. but his relationship with you seems to have been really fr- and I often wonder there's so many I've seen it with so many different people because men don't know how to express love uh it comes out as anger and fury. And, you know, there is some of this in, in you know, in, in the book where one side of it, you say, you know, they were expressive, you know, your mum and dad were expressive and, and it wasn't like a very old style buttoned up no, kind wasn't. of existence. And yet at the same time, it seems like there were a lot of moments where he, he wasn't able to, the, the love came out as fury. Oh yeah, it did. And, and violent. Because, um, and I think that had a lot to do with his own upbringing. Cause I, I learned, um later on when I when I talked to his brother who I hadn't linked with my family for years and it was just by chance that um Les you know my oldest friend Les he's um he's a landscape gardener and he went to do landscaping at this um care home near the Humber Bridge and the woman that was the receptionist there turned out to be my uncle's wife and he was talking about me to someone and they all knew me as Carol then and Les still calls me Carol. And um, and she said, this wouldn't be Carol Newby you're talking about, would it? And he said, yes. And she said, I'm Mike's wife, her uncle's wife. And so then we connected and I found out that he'd been trying to get in touch with me for years. And I had no idea that my dad's side of the family, like my auntie as well, who taught art and was really, you know, into what I was doing. I had no idea. I'd have had that support system, you know. Yeah, he's, yeah, he's, as a child, when I spoke to my uncle, I understood more where my dad was coming from because he'd said, um, you know, that it wasn't a very loving, you know, the mother-child thing going on. And my dad, having been more or less farmed out and the rest of the children were left at home, so my dad was kind of, as the eldest, was rejected. And um, he had no one to sort of teach him how to, you know, be loving towards a, a child because he hadn't had it himself. But I, I mean, that I don't make any excuse for that because luckily I had my mum. But if I just had my dad, I mean, I'm nothing like my dad. I am. I am not strict. I'm. Yeah, my own son is just like me. Mm. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> he's belligerent too. But I don't mind that. It gives him strength, you know, and he and he's very tender along with it. So, uh, yeah, there was a good balance, I suppose. My mum tried to balance it off as much as she could. She was so sweet. But, um, yeah, and being always in boys' clubs in the Navy, in the fire brigade, he never, he was always with men. So, and and definitely, and, yeah, 
say there's a girl in every port for my dad. I'm pretty sure of that. I've got his suitcase, you know. I've got his, my sister, when my mum died, when he died, and she gave me a little brown suitcase, you know, that they used to take on ships. It's mm. like cardboard, really, covered in plastic, mm. to make it look like leather. And um, it's just got his initials on the top. And inside, when you open it, there's um, pictures pasted on of movie stars. And, uh, and inside was this kimono that he obviously bought when he was abroad for my mum or something and kept it in there. So I got all these things and these medals and it was that was bizarre, yeah. going through all that. Well, it's so strangely intimate for somebody who'd shut you out. Yeah, exactly. I'm looking at this little, because it's so small, I think, you know, he can't take much with him, just in his uniform and a hat, you know. That yeah, have kimono good. will travel that was the <laughs> the merchant navy all over it was all kimonos once they got on board but not when they got yeah. not when they walked down the gangplank the kimonos were back in the bag by then <laughs> it is it's such a I, I was thinking of paul merton i remember him writing about his his, his dad and, and his dad and him had had a very kind of like all right, all right paul you know yeah. and then when his dad died he just found there were huge scrapbooks filled with everything that paul had done He'd been, yeah, you know, and 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 I think that is a, a, a real tragedy, as you said, that, that people learn a way, and if they don't break out that way, that that bit of no communication with your children, of an entirely separate life, yeah. and uh, and then sometimes you you find a thing, you find an object, you find a note, you find a letter, and you go, that's a human being I never knew, and I live with them for whatever it was, sixteen, eighteen, yeah. twenty years, you know, that people have. Mm-hmm. Um, my uncle gave me notes that um, he found in my grandmother's handbag in the, under the stairs when she died. He said, you should have these. They're from your dad to his mum when he was evacuated. Oh. And she that kept was, them in her handbag. Yeah. And he thought she, like you said, he thought she never cared about him. But she kept all his letters, every one of them. Sad, isn't it? Let's not get sad. <laughs> Yeah, it's, you know what? It's a funny thing. The strange thing is, don't worry, we're going to get on to Mick Ronson doing topless lawn mowing in a minute. Right. That's one of my favourite images. But it is, it's, it's, it's such an, uh, an interesting thing, isn't it? How, how shame can dominate our, our life. The, the, the fear of, you know, we've talked about this before, Joe, haven't we? That, the, the, the fear of saying love is so great sometimes, or of, 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 of showing it, that someone would rather do exactly that, which is far worse for everyone involved. Mm. But, um, um, yeah, I wanted, well, Mick Ronson, just this side, because I do think um, he comes across to me as one of the loveliest people. I remember watching an interview with him just sat in a really cold Hammersmith Apollo, and he would have been ill then as well, yeah. talking about how he came up with different riffs for Ziggy Stardust. And he had what I would say was what I see as a kind of whole quality mm. of just a, there was there was no sense of, of flamboyance or showing off. He'd just go, oh, and then I kind of came up with this riff. And then he'd play one of the most famous riffs that had ever been produced, and it was beautiful, and it was incredible. And 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 then when you talk about there's Mick Ronson in his garden, just normal. That, that seems to have, you know, a level of glamour to it. Yeah, it's that like with, like with him talking like that, it's a very whole thing. Because if you talked yourself up, you'd soon be knocked down. You know, mm. and you were you were in Hull, and you like with with Mick, he was in his band, and he wanted to play to people and people to come along. The last thing he it, well, he would have known that if he'd been up himself, they wouldn't have bothered. Oh, not going to see that fucker, you know. He thinks he's he gets to London where he belongs, kind of thing. But um, yeah, he was yeah, it was 
for me as a what a 10 or 11 year old in my beetle stockings and my, <laughs> my little patent heels thinking mm. I'm really you know and then as soon as I step out the door I think oh no a man <laughs> <You know? laughs> half naked man what do I do it's because you whistle and as well and I think you know god this is what happens you know because you have this not even a fantasy as a young girl but you, you get to know what um what you're going to be wearing to become um a woman and get a boyfriend you mm. don't think further than that you don't really think about what sex means no it's so innocent it really is it's it sort really of is. having no idea about the real nature of the thing you're getting into and just wanting to kind of play like play dress up really yeah that's what it was like and you and although you kind of like think you love the Beatles you know Paul McCartney was my favorite I used to think, oh, I love Paul McCartney, you know, and I had, even had little cut-out things that I'd got on, and they were on, on my on my chest of drawers, you know, and they were all playing, just little cardboard stand-up people. But I, I remember someone saying to me, and I was younger than before I started dressing up, we were in the in the um, swimming bath changing room, and um, they were all, we always used to go, because, I mean, as as young girls, you probably know, Josie, when you, when you go to somewhere like the swimming baths and like the grown-up lads or teenage lads, they'll pick the kids up and throw them about. Mm. But at the same time, you're thinking, oh, I like the way he picks me up, you know. There's, there's that innocence in it mm. that can be read quite differently, can be misinterpreted. But well, it's time, exploited, you know, really. that, you know. Oh, I like that. He's throwing me all the way over. He's nice looking, isn't he? You're sort of saying to each other. Mm. And I remember my friend saying to me, you know, you know that when you have sex? And I said, no. And she said, well, and she, I don't know how she knew. She said, well, when they put it inside you, it's like a knife. Oh, bloody hell. And that put me right off. I'm thinking, yeah, I think it would. That hurt. That'll hurt. <laughs> you know. So I, I wonder if that had anything to do with me deciding at some point not to dress up like that anymore, but just get into my little girl clothes and have a good time before I got knifed, you know. <laughs> that would, that, yeah, that was scary. That is very much Andrea Dworkin's take on it in the book Intercourse as well. I think oh, really? the uh, yeah the uh, well that was that's an interesting thing I, I, as well in the book, which is you talk about the fact that 1970s feminism, what you thought it represented, was something that didn't really chime with you. That mm. wasn't you know, and 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 I wondered in, in in what ways you found kind of the difficulty, the 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 contradiction to what you wanted to do with what you would have seen as the kind of the manifesto of it then. I think the biggest thing for me was the anti-men slant because I'd grown up and my all my time was with Les and I had loads of male friends and I was very tomboyish. I was more that than, than feminine by any means, you know, I really was. And, I, and so, I, well, I still do love men. And so in the 70s when it was all kicking off and I thought, well, that, that's, that doesn't, ring my bell you know I'm here I'm in a house full of men and I'm you know I'm doing my own thing yeah I'm still having to do the bloody housework but I'd do it if I was on my own you know and it's not like I just had no I just had it didn't have a place I didn't think about feminism because I was out there doing what I wanted to do already you know I didn't need to wear a badge to do it or listen to what I shouldn't be doing, more or less. I think that comes from a kind of survival mindset a bit, because what it reminded me of is when I was at university, I was somebody who was from a low-income background, 
And at the time, there were lots of anti-fees protests. And while I was anti-fees, I didn't go on the protest because I was thinking, they're all rich and I'm the one who's got a student loan, not them. And actually, like, I think it's, it's still, like, I look back at it and I sort of completely see where the mindset was. But, you know, I, I hadn't really grasped because I was in survival mode. I was like, I have to get through this myself and I have to do this. And now I think my attitude would be a lot more like, yes, and I'm doing this for future women or for other women who don't have my uh, privileges or, or not for with, you know. But like at that time, as a young person, I couldn't sort of see beyond like I'm in the midst of this struggle, you know. That, you, exactly. It is exactly that, is that you're in the middle of self-survival. And you're in, not in a privileged position that other people are. I mean, back then in the 70s, there was pe- they were either people that were middle class um, and had the time to do it because they had their own income or they were in a good job. Or on the other hand, there were students that had a grant. I didn't have anything. I think the most I ever got on the dole was five quid a week, you know, and half of that went on the rent. So the rest had to feed me. You know, I didn't, have, I didn't even have time to think about those issues, you know. I was out there doing what I wanted to do on a really low income and loving every minute of it. Mm. And and at the same time, there were, you know, the dockers' wives, the fishermen's wives, really, they're in a worse position than me. And I thought, well, you're not speaking. You can say what you like about, yeah, you should not be downtrodden. You should, you know, the husband should have the kids. And I'm thinking, well, this is in a different culture to the one I'm living in, that you're talking about a different culture to me completely. And yes, things should change. And I think by doing what you do, you gradually inspire other people to do it, if you like. And it's that butterfly effect that do, things do change. But I mean, how many centuries have we got to go before it really does change? I've no idea. Yeah. We've got quite a few under our belt already. Yeah. And it doesn't seem enough. Mm. Well, you do. I mean, that that's one of the things that, you know, really brought home in the book is, you know, there is this kind of you, you're, you're working with lots of people who are part of a counterculture that's going to flip over the tables on the way that society has been before. But uh, all of those men who are going to flip over the tables, uh, they will be expecting you also to wipe the table beforehand. And you're still doing all the cooking yeah. and you're the one, you know, that all of, you know, even in the kind of you know, the squats and all that kind of thing, you were still with all these people in one way were preaching a change, but at the same time expecting you to do all of the, what would be the, the, the humdrum tasks? Well, they were all from the kind of class that I mentioned. You know, they were supported by their parents, no matter how desperate it got and the, if the doll got cut off, they could just um, write or just go and make a phone call and get some money. I wasn't in that position, you know. My mum used to help me out. She used to give me money every now and again. You know, even when I lost my wage packet one day on a Friday night, it fell out of my overall pocket. <laughs> and um, she just gave me it all, you know. She said, don't worry. My dad didn't know, obviously. But, yeah, they were all of that. Um, and <laughs> Yeah, they, they went on to do whatever they did, you know. And and I, I did. I just got out of it in the end. But the, the interesting thing about when I was in Hull is that um, we had a lot of, uh, people from my estate would come round as well so they were working class and they were the ones that used to help me <laughs> not the others it was the working class people like Fizzy and Les and, and those people that would go to Laundrette with me and co- go and get the bags of coal and things it wasn't the others that were just sort of you know that was beneath them kind of thing 
but it, you know, clothing illness or whatever you want to call it, like well, they couldn't possibly do that. Yeah, it's um, what about we should move on to the art as well because I know we haven't got much, which is fluxus and male art and all of these things, which are because this is one of the things that I I love in the, what I find really fascinating is you are mixing with such uh, you, you've got the counterculture people you've got people like carolee schneeman uh and then also but you're also going around to bridget riley's house and you're seeing all her kind of early sketches and one moment you're with the british council and the british council are taking you to these and it it does seem like this incredibly kind of you know fecund period of time of the fact that you know what would have as mentioned at the beginning you know what would have been seen as a counterculture but is also kind of being accepted by lots of other different groups all of whom are excited by any possibility of creativity mm. yeah i think what what got me is that i never really put them in any position above myself and i think that's the hull in me you know and and I, and i never thought of using them in that way they were just like um a means to an end that had, that had happened by me meeting someone else in a really nice situation. And then they said, oh, come and see so-and-so. And, -so. and the, in it just all kind of tumbled together. And it was only, um, it, it wasn't networking. You know, like you have networking now, yeah. and people apply for grants and they make sure the grant has all the right criteria, but we must make it sort of like, okay, for kids. So immediately, as soon as you see that box, okay, I've got to water it down. It's not going to be what it should be. But well, it's uh, artists attracting other artists, isn't it? It's not really. Yes. That's yeah. what I, it feels like it was for you, like, you know, creativity. I Riley, I mean, she was in a position when she was doing her work where it wasn't acceptable. So we were mixing with people that had gone through what we were going through now. And maybe they were seeing the potential of what we were doing and that it was, you know, fresh. There were loads of people doing stuff like that then. Um, and you did get there was a lot of privileged people around as well I, I remember thinking that and being not resentful but just thinking here am I going through rubbish bags and things to get material for artworks mm. and uh, all the rest of it and you just go and have something made you know you can just go there or go to your mum's house and you know have, to, have some servant do it for you but I think that was a good thing for me I think you learn so much more by having to um, make it happen in a different way do it mm. yourself yeah, yeah. When did you first come across that? When when these kind of different groups and these different ideas of performance are, and when did you first become aware? Oh, this is a thing that kind of is out there. This is you know, what was your first contact with it? I think it was through um, the Yorkshire Art and um, the Yorkshire Arts Association. I think that was one of the first ones where. Um, there was, there was this thing going on about male art, I mean, because we were doing it anyway, and it was through male art, and then one guy just happened to have a contact with the Arts Association, and then they set up, and, and then panels were set up for experimental art, performance art, perform, experimental theatre at first it was called. So you had like the John Bull puncture repair outfit and all those people going on, and, um, and that he said you should apply for a grant, you know, Yes, yeah, so, so when that happened, um, we met a load of other people as well, you know. So it's like one thing led to another. And you saw, they say, all these things are happening abroad, things are happening in London. And then it just it just sort of fans out and, and everything gets really kind of busy and exciting, if you like. You meet new people, you have share ideas. And, and that's, how it, that's how it worked. 
But it was all very fun then, you know, because it, I think it had come from the beginning of a sort of street theatre, experimental theatre kind of um, approach. And then things have been going, you know, as you start to think more seriously about stuff, it got dark. <laughs> Sorry to interrupt your podcast, but I just quickly wanted to let you know about the thing, which is that Book Shambles and the Cosmic Shambles Network exist thanks to generous pledges of our listeners on Patreon. If you want to support the podcast and what we do, tiers start at just $1 a month and you'll get all sorts of goodies thrown in. So go to patreon.com slash bookshambles. Because it, it does sound like fun. And I mean, that whole thing when you're talking about, you know, uh, Jeff Nuttall and the Kipper kids as well, Harry and Harry Kipper. And I knew nothing about Harry and Harry Kipper. And I was straight okay. off going, right, I need to know more about one of the guys I know did some acting and stuff as well in, in, in later life. And, and uh, I forget his name now. And, but, was it but, Brian or Martin? Brian. Is it Brian Ralph or Brian yeah, Ruth? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, but that was – it really gave me a sense of excitement, which I've never seen whenever I've read about, say, you know, we were talking about the change in the 1980s, that 90s art scene, that sensation scene sometimes seems to be like a kind of battle reenactment society mm. of what you were part of that it and also it seems that the financial side of it and i might be wrong about this but in the 90s and i suppose also with what's his name the uh, uh um conservative propagandist sarchi uh, guy mm. um it seems to it, that the 90s scene felt like a very moneyed scene yeah, and that everyone—it's a bit like talking to some people who were in advertising in the '60s, and they said all those people who came out of it, Ridley Scott and Alan Parker and stuff—it wasn't a fashionable thing to be involved in. So no. you went into it, and you created. Whereas by the '90s, it was a, a fashionable thing. So you have a totally different attraction to it. And I felt, you know, reading about those people that you were working with, and you know, and, and names like Kathy Acker popping up as well. So you've got all of these different worlds. It seems to come from a different place. Yeah, it it came from, yeah, it came from our lives and our individualism, if you like, is that we were all expressing ourselves in different ways and it was very particular, like with the Kipper kids. I mean, that, that was something I would never think of doing, a boxing match with yourself and, you know, the referee being your partner and not letting you stop. I mean, that's absolute, I mean, I found it very difficult to watch, you know, and and I, I mean, I, I, would, I knew Brian better than I knew Martin. So it used to kind of upset me a little bit, you know. Yeah, they went on. I mean, I, I saw the stuff that they reconnected and did stuff, and it was still just as crazy. But going across on the ferry with them to Holland, I mean, it was just amazing. I mean, I don't think I've ever laughed so much in my life as when I was in their company. Other than Les. Les makes me laugh like that. But them two together... It was just like being with two amazingly funny, desperate Dans, you know, that had no boundaries whatsoever. And and as soon as anyone came within spitting distance of them, they were just fodder, you know, and they would just sort of like, aim, you know, target them immediately. Not in a nasty way. It was hilarious because people were just so shocked. You know, just their appearance was just, back then was just, you never saw anything like that. Is it frustrating to sort of, be ahead of the curve or is it exciting to see people finally catching up um 
I don't know. It's exciting being, I don't think of myself as ahead of the curve so much as I'm just doing what I want to do. And I'm excited if I've got, like if we're doing music or something and there's a, a new bit of equipment and suddenly I think, God, if we use it like this, that'll be amazing because you can you can arrange it this way. You get a sound that is so different. But if you marry it with something, and then the whole thing starts like flooding together, mm. you know, and you sort of think, oh, that's going to be amazing. Yeah, can we afford it? Can we afford it? You know, yeah, maybe, maybe. And But uh, if we can't, well, can we do it another way? So that, that's exciting. It's finding a way to make something that you can hear in your head or see if it's an artwork. And when it all starts coming together, it's like, so, yeah, that's the exciting part. And whether and, and you think, and that excitement carries you right through to the end. And when you kind of deliver it, it, it could almost like, well, it doesn't matter now because I've done it. So it doesn't matter what anyone thinks either because I've had such a great ride doing it and it's there and it's just how I want it. And so that's that's it. That's how it's going to be. don't matter, you know, whether people like it or if they buy it because I've already got the stuff and I can, I can do something else with this now, you know. Mm. So that's how I, I look at things. It, it, it's almost like the process of it is the best bit. Yes, completely. Uh, yeah. And then if it works... That's a kind of like, yes, you know. But I think that's got a, it. <laughs> I think that's a DIY attitude as well, isn't it? It's understanding that the joy comes from the practice of the art, no matter what the scale, no matter what the level, like the joy comes from the practice of the art. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I really believe that. Yeah, and, and then on top of that, what you get from that, new things emerge mm. that have a place later on that you never would have found had you not done that. Yeah, you know that's what's great about it. You know, I can go back now and I can and even look because I'm in my office here. I can look at my desk, and and I'm thinking, like I'm writing my second book at the moment. And I'm thinking, God, that from five years ago is exactly what I need for this book. I would never, you know, if I hadn't done that back then, it wouldn't fit into this context of someone else's life that I'm writing about. And I think that's what's great about it. You know, if, if you just like follow things and you don't do things then I think life is a lot poorer than it needs well, like, to be. I also think it it doesn't make for a healthy long I think careers not that I don't like the word career but it doesn't make for a healthy long career to sort of stop innovating. Well to base your life on a career is a bit of a well for me would be a mistake I don't see the point of that I mean all along a career as such would have been back in when I was younger you know, like um, a proper professional career, you know, you say, oh, yeah, okay, you get a job and you get a pension. Well, that's up the swanny, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I never took that, I'm glad I never took that advice. <laughs> Pensions are robbed and, you know, the jobs are gone. And you you think just how sad that is, you know, that people have invested so much and they've just been absolutely gutted, you know, by other people. It's really sad. And, I, you know, I don't feel like um, holy than thou about what I've done at all. I just think that, you know, what I did, I did for who I am and, and what I wanted to do with my life. And it's just as simple as that. Yeah. But, yeah, doing art and stuff is fantastic. That's why when I said when the art ends up in the Tate or wherever else, it's not solid by that because it's just... It is what it is at the time, and that's what it was meant to be. And if it means something to other people, then that's great. 
it's a different kind of meaning now completely. See, that's what I, I think really comes across is, um, especially like in, in the later kind of uh, parts of the book where the sense that both you and Chris, the joy of making things really comes across. The joy of going, what kind of sound? We can make a sound. How are we going to make that sound? Well, I've got this box here and I've got these and I've got these screws here. And it, and that excitement is really, you know, it's, it's a very tangible thing. And in fact, I think that's one of the things I felt with when you talk about that kind of reunion and the, 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 the last days of Throbbing Gristle, that sense where you are all together are one person. Mm. creating stuff and that frustration going if only all of us were, were in this room we're all meant to be creating things because that 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 that's what i think comes across that excitement of why wouldn't you want to be in this studio well, that's um, what we can make understand. this noise we found it really difficult to understand but then again if you think of the history it was very difficult uh, you know and, and and there was no interest whereas us us three were just like firing off left right and center and it was really exciting, even, you know, as XTG when we got to Bologna and and Sleazy was coming into our hotel room and, and like, sort of like gushing with all these ideas. And we go like, all right, calm down, you know, yeah, 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 yeah. But, and then we go, and they say like, how can we make it happen? Right, okay, we'll figure it out now. And then, but it was that um, openness that you needed and when you're when you close yourself off from people, like I was saying in the book, whether it's through drugs or anything else, there's a huge price to pay for that, you know. And the price was renewing a friendship and renewing a fantastic artistic relationship, and um, and that that was sad, you know. But we soon got over the sadness. <laughs> that got overshadowed by having to sort out the trouble, you know. But I mean, we got we got through it, and we did some great things. And you know, getting together with Sleazy again was one of them. You know, I love that we we've run. Well, just one of the I was looking again at diary entries. One of my favourites, thinking of that battle between sometimes the creative and the social, because as we we know, some people it's about what will they be exactly you know what will people think of me if I make this thing and the other yeah. is well, we'll just make the thing but I loved your 21st of February 1977 went to the Roxy tonight Mark P was with Jen all night and Tony Parsons never again shit <laughs> that's one of my favorite ones see she knows what's what you, you saw through Tony what? Parsons before <laughs> all the others uh, <laughs> it's such a great book and I really as I said at the beginning I, it was I mean this is it also, I mean, hugely successful. Did that take you? But because I can imagine when Faber first well, they thought, well, this is a story that needs to be told. But and and it does readdress, I think, a lot of things. Sometimes when I've been looking back over the history of some of the you know kind of things that you've been involved in, your 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 in fact, everyone else's voice is quite. I looked at the industrial handbook thing that research brought out, mm. and you're you're like you, you and Chris are about three questions in the whole yeah. thing. There's a huge piece about throbbing gristle and you just say, end up both saying something quite technical about a particular sound. Mm. And then the mythologizing is, is, is around the rest of it. So I know it really, but this, the success of it and the excitement that it's given, would you have in any way uh, had, had a sense that, that that would happen? No, even when, when I, when I submitted the final manuscript, um, cause there were a few sort of like ups and downs in between, um, when I discovered certain things, I had to have about a month off at one point. 
Um, and when I when I when I submitted it, and they came back and said, you know, oh, this is fantastic, blah blah. It's gonna whatever. I just thought they were being nice. I really did. I think that's that that hull in me. Yeah, okay. You know, don't get up yourself. They're just being nice. You know, I had no idea. And then when I when I toured with the book, and I met all these different people, and they said what it meant to them to read it, you know. And then the other connections and, you know, of different people that I never knew, knew my relatives, all that kind of thing. It all came out, me meeting Snip's daughter and, you know, it was very bizarre. It was really, really wonderful, really wonderful. And I never expected it. And I still don't now. I still get handwritten letters sometimes, not always in green ink, which is a bad sign. <laughs> But um, I get some lovely letters and emails just out of the blue, just saying, dropping in and saying, I've just read your book and I wanted to just let you know how much it meant to me and blah, blah, you know. It, and those things you don't expect because you sort of do everything, yeah, from the heart of you. So it's very personal and it, it's very difficult for me as a whole person to take a compliment, <laughs> you know. Well, well, I won't bother then. Yeah, I don't want to make you uneasy. Um, the uh, what, What's the next book? You're working on a new one. Can you tell us yet what, you, what you're doing? Um, yeah, it's a, it's a book about um, myself, Dee Dee Derbyshire and Marjorie Kemp, the visionary mystic. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is very exciting. How long do we have to wait? Um, I've got to deliver it next year and it'll be out 2022. Oh, man, that sounds brilliant. Yeah, so that it's is. just how we how we got through our lives, um, because we all had struggles and we all dealt with them in different ways. So, but we have a lot of connections. So, obviously, just not just as women, but different things we came up against and how we dealt with them differently. Oh, that's but, fantastic! Yeah, Thank that sounds really cool. Thank you so much for joining us. And um, art, sex, music is still uh, also it has a phrase which I hadn't seen for years. At one point, you say afternoon nookie. I hadn't seen Nookie in a book for such a long time. Oh, really? And uh, there's a delight in sometimes all the other things that are going on and the, the, sometimes the intensity of, you know, the artistic creation and also sometimes the intensity of, of, of the relationships that are going on to suddenly find a moment where our afternoon Nookie pops up. Uh, it's great as well. Um, thanks so much for joining us. And, uh, Thank you. Said, we got there in the end. And... Uh, uh, we will be back soon. Uh, thanks very much, everyone who supports us on uh, Patreon. And uh, as I said, this is uh, the book is is out now. It's uh, Faber and Faber, and also go and find out about all the other. There's so much creativity out there, so much uh, intriguing uh, music, and an incredible kind of uh, history behind it as well. So thank you very much, everyone, for listening. Bye bye. Thank you for listening. Thank you to our Patreon supporters. Thank you if you've gone onto Apple Podcasts and rated and reviewed the show five stars. If you haven't, you can do that. It's free and it really helps us out. Back next week with another new episode. Our guest next week will be the comedian Mark Steele. So look forward to that. In the meantime, stay home, stay safe, wear a mask, wash your hands, do all those things. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. Good, good, good.